Podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Please turn in your, the scriptures to Hebrews chapter 13. This time, surprise not verse 1. I had a little kidding about spending some time in the first part of the chapter. Verse 10 this morning. If you have your the Bible that's in the chair or the pew, it's page 1009. If you don't know where Hebrews is, not that easy to find. 1009. Bottom of the page of that Bible. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent... Have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let us pray. O Lord, bless your word that we would understand it, hide it in our hearts, and live it out in our lives. To the glory of Jesus. Amen. If you have had the same experience as me, Bible reading many times breaks down when you hit Leviticus. Because you read of sacrifice after sacrifice and the priest this and the priest that. Even in Exodus, you get a lot of that. And and some of us just think, well, I just can't go any further. And that's about it for the Old Testament. I'll skip over to Mark. Thank you. Here's a passage that lifts a little bit of the veil up for us. And I hope it'll interest you at least to think, well, if if the writer delves a little bit into the Old Testament at this point and opens it up in such a wonderful way, I wonder what else is there to be found. And we'll hopefully this just will encourage you along those lines in some of the most difficult areas in the Old Testament, some of the most glorious things are to be taught us there. I've entitled this, though, The New Altar and a New Life. He speaks there in verse 10 about an altar. And in the Old Testament, of course, there was an altar where the animals were sacrificed, where the blood was shed. And then in the he's particularly applying this or speaking of the Day of Atonement, that one time a year when the blood was brought into the holiest place in the tabernacle or the temple. And as we've already seen in Hebrews or or he's already talked about in Hebrews, that represents 
Christ crucified on the cross, the blood of the cross uh, being a parallel to the blood of the altar. And instead of the blood of the priest, of the priest taking the blood of the lamb into that holy area in the tabernacle, Jesus is the priest, offers himself. So he's the priest and the lamb. And he takes his blood into the heavenly place, into the very presence of the father. So all of those things represent something incredibly important and precious to us, without which we would never be in heaven ourselves. Now, here he is talking about another aspect of that atonement, that day of atonement, that we don't think about that much. In the day of atonement, those animals that were sacrificed, unlike other sacrifices on other days, those animals were never eaten. You could not eat them. In fact, those animal carcasses were taken outside the camp and burned completely. It's to that that he is referring here. And there's, you might think, when you read that in the Old Testament, okay, animals taken outside the camp and burned, and okay, what's next? Until you realize he is pointing to something very precious about Jesus Christ that we learn from those animals being burned outside the camp. Now, isn't it interesting that he begins by saying, we have an altar. Obviously, he's not speaking about a literal altar. You won't find an altar in this place. There's not an altar in the New Testament, literally. But it's it's the parallel. Our altar is the cross of Jesus Christ. Our, our offering place, the, the blood sacrifice, is Christ himself. And he says those who serve the tent, those who are holding on to simply that Old Testament uh, ritual and liturgy, rejecting Christ, have no right to eat of our altar, to partake of it, to benefit from it. Because he still, as he does throughout this book, is contrasting the uh, old Judaism that's supposed to issue and embracing the Messiah of Judaism. And yet these people who had embraced that Messiah were being tempted to reject Messiah and return to the Messiah-less Judaism. Okay, that was, that was their temptation. And so he's constantly showing uh, the, the loss of that. And he refers to that. Those, if, if you return to that, you have no right to eat of the altar that we have. And so in verse 11, he makes it, uh, he, he talks about that sacrifice, the sacrifice that was burned outside the camp. Verse 12, here's his conclusion. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now, here is a fascinating thing. An altar in the most intimate place in the Old Testament, right outside the the Holy of Holies. You go through one room and into the Holy of Holies, but right there in front of the tabernacle, our altar is outside the camp. The altar that we have is not inside. It's outside the gate. Now, in the Old Testament, those who were taken outside the camp and stoned, one 
group that was taken out is the blasphemer. Blasphemers taken outside and others taken outside the gates to be stoned outside the camp. That phrase outside the camp is used there. And you recall that Jesus was accused of blasphemy. And so Jesus is taken outside the camp to be condemned, to be put to death. And so he concludes that if Jesus is suffering outside the gate, this is a sign of his being rejected and judged and a parallel to the burning of these animals. These animals were burned because the sins of the people had been put upon them. The hands of the priests had been put upon these animals. They had been killed. And then because they so represented the sins of the people, you couldn't even eat these animals. They could have nothing to do with any fellowship or partaking. They simply, like refuge and garbage, had to be put outside the camp and just burned. It's a shocking analogy here. Shocking analogy. That Christ was so identified with our sins that like a piece of refuge, he had to be taken outside the gate and just burned. That's where our altar is. Outside. The shocking destruction of Jesus Christ outside the gate. And then the call to us is to go to him outside the gate and bear his reproach, the reproach he endured. And here, he's talking about, of course, the rejection of the city, the rejection of society against Jesus and the hatred against him. Not so much at this point the judgment of God that fell upon him, though that's prominent. But now a part of that was the fact that he was cut off from mankind, not worthy of being associated with mankind. Considered unworthy of that. And so risking his reproach, we are to go out to him. And many commentators point out the fact that The picture really is here to go out as he bore his cross to go to that place, to bear that cross with him, to go out with him on the way to the cross, because going out is always associated with the bearing of the cross, the shame of that cross. It represented the most shameful death and being shut away from people. That's why crucifixion was done outside the city, because of its shame. And you recall Jesus' own words in Mark. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The writer of Hebrews is just saying this in a different way. Let us go out. Let us bear the reproach he endured. Jesus himself, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to come after me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross just as I took up a cross and follow me. And that's not as many people have thought, well, the various cross of your various trials and the like. In the main, it primarily refers to 
bearing his rejection and the persecution he endured, bearing the rejection of mankind against him. For later in that same passage in Mark, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so it's connected vitally with this shame that he bore, this reproach. And we're to go out and bear that shame and rejection and alienation. And in their case, the loss of, and possibly us too, but the loss of property and standing and life. The idea is abandon yourself to him. Abandon all for him. Have only him. And when you go out and you bear his cross, you've got nothing else. Can you imagine that picture? You've let go of everything and you're simply bearing the cross of rejection cut off from mankind and society for all practical purposes. That's the image Jesus gives. And it not only in regard to society and shame, but even your relationships in the same context in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So to go and bear his reproach, to to bear his cross is to cut yourself off possibly from everything and everybody. And many people in the world and throughout history have experienced this for the sake of Jesus Christ. And of course, he's trying to shore them up because they are in danger of apostasy. They are in danger, even though they themselves have suffered so much and nobly and courageously as they're about to face a new round of sufferings. There was evidence that many of them were starting to abandon the faith. And so you could see how critically important this is for him to underscore who Christ is and what our position is. This abandonment of all things for his sake. But there's a there's an interesting paradox here in the Old Testament. Generally, the presence of God was represented in the camp, of course, and to be cut off from the camp was because you're cut off from the presence of God. Um, it, those who were leprous or had a discharge or unclean represented, in a way, sin at that time. They were, it was a teaching me- a mechanism to show the result of sin and, and how we'd be cut off from God because of sin. And even there, he says, they must not be in the, the, the camp in the midst of which I dwell. So the camp represented his presence, except... After the uh, the golden calf episode, when the camp had been polluted, the tent was moved outside the camp. The tent of meeting, the glory and presence of God was moved outside the camp. And you had to go out of the camp to meet with God and fellowship with God. 
And a whole series of commentators have pointed out that this is, in effect, what has happened with Jerusalem as they have abandoned God, have abandoned God's Messiah. Messiah is cast out. And guess where the presence of God is now? It's not in the city. It's with Messiah. There's the place of glory. There's where you meet with God. And there is no other place to meet with God except to abandon yourself to Messiah. And to bear his reproach. That's the real tent of meeting. F.F. Bruce says, what was formerly sacred, that is, the city, was now unhallowed because Jesus had been expelled from it. And what was formerly unhallowed outside was now sacred because Jesus was there. And Hughes adds this, Christ is our only sanctuary and everyone who seeks God must go forth to find him in and through Jesus outside the camp. But here's another paradox. Notice in verse 14, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We've used the illustration before of uh, Wiley in the tree cutting off the limb that Roadrunner's on, right? And you know what happens, and you, you know it's about to happen, and he saws it off, and then the whole tree falls, you know? And there's the Roadrunner sitting on the limb. Now, that would be made complete for our understanding if we realized that you go out and identify yourself with Christ... And it's as though you feel like I only have this little patch with Jesus. And yet, in the final analysis, in the final judgment day, that patch is going to be none other than the new heavens and the new earth. The only safe place there is. The paradox of leaving everything to have Christ is that you gain everything with Christ. And then if you try to hold on to what you have, you lose everything without him. That's what's so difficult about this. Believing, as he says, in the city that is to come. You see, you don't leave Christ. You don't, you don't leave the world for nothing. God never calls you to leave your city, your society, all the stuff you have. He doesn't call you to leave it. For nothing. He says you must leave your city to embrace the new city. And not literally, of course, you know, Fort Worth as such, but to leave the world and the society that rejects Christ to embrace his new society. And so as we abandon this world society, we do so in hope of another we give up something for something far greater. It's city for city. And so every other supposed safe decision, safe place. And, and that's what he's driving home to them. That if you try to play it safe and you return to your uh, Jewish roots and reject Messiah and now Roman persecution falls away and now you can have all your stuff in your house and you won't be in prison you will lose everything in the end. It will all be swallowed up in judgment. 
Psalm 37, from which is quoted that phrase in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit the earth. And that's quoted from Psalm 37. Just hear some of the thought of that psalm. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. And he goes on. So we follow Christ outside the gate, ultimately to the new Jerusalem, don't we? And the writer wants them thinking about that. Yes, you are going outside the gate to that city that is to come. That's the city that we seek. And isn't it interesting then in verse 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice. That phrase continually was used in the Old Testament to talk about the sacrifice that's given morning and night and morning and night. Well, now it's not that sacrifice that's continued, but a continual sacrifice of praise. What's amazing about this is the stark, harsh terms of bearing his reproach. And yet there's not this terrible martyr, woe is us attitude outside the gate when you've lost everything and you're rejected. This is the place of praise. And brothers and sisters, let us get a hold of this. It's the only place of true praise there is. There is no place of praise while we're trying to hold on to this world. There is no place of true praise by any theology that will proclaim health and wealth at the expense of Jesus Christ. No matter how loud the singing may be. There is only praise outside the gate. It's because we're, he is so precious to us. We're just like the parable, as Jesus said, the man finds a treasure in a field and for joy over it, he leaves everything that he has and sells it. Doesn't that describe these people? They found a treasure. They'd be willing to seek the city that is to come, to seek Christ and all that he will give them. And they're willing to lose anything and everything. They're willing to identify with God's people if it even means their own rejection and loss. To be a part of the new community, whatever that confession may cost them. If they have to go to brothers and sisters and see this is a parallel of, of, of verse 3 as they visit them in prison and, and hazard their own life. That's what he's talking about when he says go outside the gate and bears reproach. It has a practical application. Go and minister to your brother in prison and bear his reproach and loss if need be. 
Isn't it amazing that the writer would... Because it seems, I just feel like, well, surely it'd be okay for me to stay home and not get caught. And he, he marks that it could be the very sign that I'm not even willing to follow Christ. And let me just remind you that Christ himself suffered abandonment and rejection and alienation so that you and I might suffer intimacy and the embrace of God. And it's interesting that Abraham, it it says earlier in Hebrews 11, was called to go to a place that he didn't know. But you and I are called to go to a place that we do know because we go to Jesus. Think of the difference in that. It may be hard. You may lose everything. But where are you going? You're going to Christ. You're going to your Savior. You're going to your King who suffered and died for you. Who was alienated and rejected and bore reproach so that you could be rescued and have the intimacy forever with God. So that you might receive the new heavens and the new earth. It talks about bearing His Reproach in verse 13 in Isaiah 53, it says, surely he has borne the same word, our griefs and carried our sorrows. As you bear the reproach of the one who bore your griefs. Who bore your sins. Is that a safe place or what? Is that a place for shelter? Yes. Is he going to do you good? Yes. May there be loss, yes, but the gain will far outweigh, as Paul says, he is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond our tribulation, so that it's momentary light affliction. And so our altar, as he continues that analogy, our altar is simply praise and love. Praise and love. Which really brings to our vision statement, nurturing a joy for loving God and loving people. Offering up the sacrifice of praise. And as we are truly able to offer up that sacrifice of praise, rejoicing in all that God has done for us, we lay ourselves out for one another in love. That's a, that's a much better sacrifice than... The horrible smell of dying animals day in and day out. The glory of showing forth the very character of Jesus Christ and the joy that he has given us. May God so work in our hearts that we will live even as he calls us to live here. Let us pray. Lord, we have a new altar and we have a new life by your grace A new life in which we offer ourselves up. And Lord, to think that our sacrifice is is to be called to joy, to be called to praise, to recognize all that you are as our creator and redeemer. All that you've done in all of creation and redemption. And to actively enjoy you and delight in you. To actively admire you. Day in and day out. To be having lips that offer up constant thanksgiving. Lord, what a glorious paradox that we could be losing everything 
And all the while, praising you more and more intensely, happier and happier, even as we die for Jesus Christ. Oh, what a glory that is to you, Lord. That you would so support us and sustain us. That you would so show yourself to us. That you would be such a glorious master that we would give anything for you. Lord, may we set forth this, set forth this light and this kind of lifestyle over and against the heinous message going forth from so many places that call us not to suffer but to expect anything but suffering. What kind of Christ, what kind of worthiness is that which we're not willing to give up anything but we only want to use you to use you as some means to get the stuff that we really want. Oh Lord, you are Lord. May we in our lives exalt you as Lord and honor you by our passionate love, by our joy, and by our sacrifice. Bless us, Lord. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Shall my soul with rapture trace